Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, let's do it. Hey, everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers, and it's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Now, we step back into the ring, back into time. Let's get wall-to-wall and treetop tall with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, hanging out in the great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. So what's the weather like, Ron? Is it cooling down a little bit? Oh, geez, man. You know, I thought springtime came for sure a couple of days ago, and we were up there 75, 80 degrees, and wow, it's going down to 35 again tonight. So, you know, I just can't figure it out. I don't think the, the Mother Nature's got it figured out correctly. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking we could have a groundhog hunt. Are you up for that? Yeah, <laughs> maybe that's what we need to do. Uh, we get him straightened out. We'll have some good weather, man. We'll get we'll get springtime earlier. Yeah, why not? Hey, listen, you said it was going to happen, Ron, and many of the last studcast have set new records, but number 291, last week's show, has been a monster. Two new and young wrestlers that were destined to become a couple of the biggest stars in the sports history had just arrived in Southeastern and were having their first matches, really, in their careers. Yeah, they were so new, Dave, that we had to give them their names, man. They didn't <laughs> yeah. have a name, you know. They, uh, so you couldn't use Terry Bolia to be the Hulk, uh, you know. So, uh, so one of them came from Tampa, uh, you know, since you're talking about the two guys and uh, so that everybody knows who we're talking about here. Uh, one of them came from Tampa. He had a great bodybuilder physique, man. He had a burning desire to be special. You could tell that from the very beginning. And his real name was Terry Bolia, you know. So, mm-hmm. so we initially uh, called him Sterling Golden, but primarily we called him basically simply the Hulk, you know. And we put him in the southeastern Gulf Coast territory. And the other star that uh, you mentioned off the top here uh, came from Stone Mountain, Georgia, man. And uh, he was just as huge as the Hulk, <laughs> but in another way. He weighed 450 pounds, yeah. and uh, Jerry Blackwell was going to be called Crusher Blackwell. Yep. He was going to become a star almost instantly in southeastern Knoxville territory. Truly a mountain of a man. Listen, you pushed them both to the top of the cards as fast as possible. So why did you pick these two wrestlers in particular, or did they just kind of fall into your lap? How did that work? 
Well, Terry Bolia, the future Hulk Hogan, you know, he had a unique body. Uh, obviously, he had muscles on top of muscles, man. And uh, and he had an innate and very rare charisma about him that, you know, you just can't teach that to somebody. You know, you either got it or you don't. And uh, he had this booming voice and he, and an attitude that was perfect for a heel or a baby face. Once you got him over as a heel and you turn him baby face, wow, it's, it works there too. So something about him was special to fans from the first time they saw him, man. And, uh, and he's going to go on to become maybe the most recognizable professional wrestler in the history of the sport, undoubtedly. I don't believe there's anybody that argue with that. The other one, Jerry Blackwell, the crusher, he also had an innate ability of his own. Uh, he was the most quick and agile 450-pound man that I think ever set foot in a wrestling ring. He could stand flat-footed and drop kick a six-foot-tall man in the face with both feet. Incredible. Incredible. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, unlike the Hulk, though, you know, he was, he was a little more soft-spoken, uh, kind of fans. And therefore, he was almost instantly dearly loved by all the fans. Wow, they just gathered around him everywhere he went. He was, he was a perfect baby face. And to make the whole thing work even better, so far as Crusher was concerned, mm -hmm. we'd introduced him in a really unique way that, uh, you know, he was able to explain in depth and the personality profile of the last week's uh, Knoxville TV show in the last studcast. And see, that's a to me, that's a really great description of both of them, Stud. But they were not the only two wrestlers in your territories in 1979 that were going on to become huge stars. Because what you were building, I don't think anybody really realized. That's why the title for the Studcast, I think, is perfect. You call this one Creating Wrestling Legends. And now what we know about you, you're known for that. And that couldn't be more true than the four young stars you had in 1979 that really went on to huge heights. Well, we were we were blessed, Dave. There's no doubt about that, man. Uh, and uh, you're right, man. They were two very young stars in the southeastern Gulf Coast territory that uh, we didn't even talk about. Uh, it's going to go on. Uh, they're going to both go on like the Hulk and Blackwell to become actually Hall of Famers. There's two more in the southeastern Gulf Coast young guys that are going to become Hall of Famers as well. One of them is uh, Dr. D, David Schultz, the guy's famous for the slap herd around the world, and, uh, and Wayne Ferris, the future honky-tonk man. So oddly enough, they were both trained by the same tough wrestler, and I know he was tough because he was my granddad, my granddad Roy's brother, Herb Welch. <laughs> and he trained both of those guys. Well, see, I love I love the super stud cast that you did with each of them, Ron. Their description of what they went through being trained in Herb's barn outside Dyersburg, Tennessee, by the way. Absolutely hilarious stories built into those. For those that aren't aware, you can hear these classic David Schultz Honky Tonk Man, Super Studcast. All you have to do is go to Ron's fantastic website, tnstud.com. So I had to get a plug in there for that when you mentioned that because this is this is history that is already there, available for you if you want to check it out, and you can get a real deep dive. So more 1979 history is waiting, Stud. So where do we ride today? 
We're going to be starting this one in southeastern Knoxville in the last week of March. And uh, and basically, it was going to be the first Friday night. We always did at the end of the month of March. We moved from Sunday afternoons to Friday nights. And this cart was the fourth annual Night of Champions, headlined by an NWA non-sanctioned lights-out match, plus four championship matches, and the introduction of the first and only Bayliner Boat Tournament in wrestling history. Uh, we'll also discuss the TV show to promote all of that. We'll talk about the results of that card. Uh, we'll talk about the attendance on this event, this uh, Night of Champions. And uh, then we'll take a brief ride to Memphis uh, to see how things are going, you know, over there with my brother Rob and a lot of the guys uh, that were in my territory that are now at this point in Memphis. Mm -hmm. And then we'll ride south down to the Gulf Coast where the Hulk, for the first time in just his third appearance, put his bear hug on an opponent and made him bleed from the mouth. Uh, and it was something that was the talk of all wrestling fans in that part of the country. And what it did was begin a great run for this guy that set him on the path to becoming extremely famous. We'll find out what was on the Mobile Alabama card that week. We'll talk about the rest of the TV show other than this match with the Hulk that promotes that card. We'll talk about the results of the card. And we'll talk about the attendances in all three of the major markets down there in the Gulf Coast. And, uh, you know, uh, then we're going to talk about uh, another trip, take another trip to Memphis. We're going to see what one of their cards look like in the same week of 1979 as the two we have in Southeastern. And uh, we'll find out where so many of the Southeastern wrestlers were now working, and we're going to find out basically what was happening over there in Memphis. And uh, then hopefully after a couple of long stud casts, uh, you know, we've had some long ones lately. <laughs> we've really filled them up with a lot of information. Hopefully today we'll get to a learning tree question again. All right. We'll see what we can do about that. Three territories, their cards and everything else. You're trying to throw a rope around today. That's all right. We'll see what we can do. No wonder stud, these stud casts are absolutely exploding in popularity. We better start riding. We better get on the trail. So what about the card for the Knoxville Coliseum, March 30th, 1979? Well, Steve, uh, it was really a great one, man. It was the fourth annual Night of Champions. Uh, obviously, we were lucky to be in business for four years. A lot of territories <laughs> didn't make it that long. <laughs> now we got our fourth annual Night of Champions, and it opened up, you know, the first match was the for the $20,000 Bayliner boat that we were having a tournament for. Wow, wow, wow. who was going to get that boat. <laughs> okay, Stud, I think you said boat tournament. All right, so I know you've done car tournaments. You've given away minks to the ladies, but I have not heard anything about a boat being given away. Well, man, you know, like I, like I always, Dave, I want to do something different, man, and uh, something that's never been done before. And, uh, and I don't think this had ever been done before that I'm aware of. And, uh, and the, boat, the Bayliner Boat Company was home-based in Knoxville. And uh, because uh, we had that huge TV audience and we were having such success and filling the Coliseum, we were their biggest customer. Uh, the boat company came to me. Uh, you know, at first they didn't come to me. They came to uh, one of my referees and then uh, – 
And then uh, I, I got, I figured out what they wanted to do. And, uh, you know, they wanted to get into profit with the promotion with us. And I couldn't handle the details myself because I didn't want to let people know that I owned the company. If I did that, I thought that would be really detrimental mm -hmm. to my company mm -hmm. and to my uh, ability to wrestle for myself, basically. So what I did is I called my dad up and I said, how about coming over from Memphis, man, and then negotiate this deal for me. I'll tell you what I want to do and you see if you can get it done. So he came in from uh, Memphis and uh, I, I picked out a 24-foot cabin cruiser, uh, which was a beautiful boat. Wow. The boat was, uh, back in those days, a $20,000 value in 1979. Wow. Well, that's equal to 80000 in today's money. So basically... $80,000 boat is a pretty nice boat, you know, and uh, basically it was the 20000 value in 1979. Yeah, when you mentioned that earlier, a $20,000 boat, I was like, what? So, I mean, that's really amazing for a boat to be given away in 1979, valued at that much, as you said, a cabin cruiser, no less, and the winner of the tournament was going to win that thing? Yeah, they sure were, you know, and, uh, and you know, uh, but I didn't spend the whole twenty thousand, man. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't go there. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what they had it for sale for right. to an ordinary customer. Right. But you know, they came to me and they wanted some exposure, so I basically traded them some exposure and some advertising uh, on their, you know, their company's name, the Bayliner name, right. and uh, and I, I advertised them. In fact, we took the boat down to the Coliseum every week, and uh, people could see the boat. Uh, while they were hanging out at the Coliseum. And then uh, we advertised it, obviously, on the TV show every week about this Bayliner boat tournament. And uh, so with the trade, I actually paid less than $10,000 for the boat. Wow. So so it was my first taste, Dave, of trading advertising for money for the association with my company. <laughs> and And when I left wrestling in 1988 and I got into hockey, I got extremely good at this stuff, man. So one year in 1991, uh, I traded $2,000,000 in free advertising for my Cincinnati hockey team, man, for all kinds of products. So I went a little crazy with it. But, wow, it kind of changed hockey. Minor league hockey changed dramatically because of some of the deals I was able to cut and people that wanted to get into hockey then go out Wow, how can you do that kind of business yeah. with minor league hockey? Um, yeah, yeah. Word gets around in a small, small town, especially, but in a town like Nashville, the things you were doing in hockey began to. They were like, "What? How is he selling these tickets?" And somebody evidently went to a show. I don't know, but they found out and they started doing it too. So it it really figures. And I wonder too, Stud. Do you? Do you ever go to the grocery store and try to trade chickens or goats for groceries? <laughs> Are you in any? <laughs> I don't have any chickens or goats in my or Maybe I would. Y'all you know? take barter I, up I, here. Gosh, the way the way prices are in the grocery store, uh, you got to take a bunch of chickens and goats to get anything. Hey, we better start building coops. I'm telling you. Listen to figures. I can't wait to hear the story about this. You didn't miss a thing, even as far back in 19, as 1979, nine years before you even left wrestling. So who was in the first Bayliner boat tournament match? Well, that was the first match on this um, night of champions, and uh, it was Mr. Fuji, managed by Ron Wright. He was taking on Terry Gibbs. 
And uh, it, it was the very first match in that tournament. That tournament's going to go on for months. Uh, and then the second match was for the Mid-American Championship. Uh, Nick Goulas uh, out of Nashville sent me more the legendary Jackie Fargo, man, tremendous wrestler in the South. And uh, and I, he was actually Nick's champion at that time in the in the Mid-American uh, territory of, in Nashville. And uh, he also sent his an opponent for him, Tojo Yamamoto, who wasn't a bad heel, as a matter of fact. So uh, second match is Jackie Fargo against Tojo Yamamoto for the Mid-America Championship. Then uh, for the Southern title in the third match, uh, we got from the Memphis Territory, uh, their present champion, but our former Southeastern star that we had sent to them at Tor Tanaka, was going to be defending the Southern Championship for out of Memphis against me. And for the Southeastern Tag Belts, the champions Bob Roop and Bob Orton Jr. were going to be defending against Kevin Sullivan and Dean Ho. The Southeastern Championship was on the line. Ronnie Garvin uh, was wrestling the Destroyer, uh, who was Bob Roop, wearing a mask. And the main event was the NWA non-sanctioned lights-out match between the great Malenko and the Canadian Bumblebee. Wow. That's a tremendous card, Ron. So how about the TV that set all this up to promote it and get it going? What, what was that like? Well, the opening TV match was for the Mid-American Championship. Uh, I actually talked to uh, Nick and the enemy Jackie Fargo on a Saturday. And uh, so we got an opening match. It's a Mid-American Championship match on TV with Jackie Fargo. And Jackie had not been seen by Southeastern fans in five years since 1974. When I bought the territory, he was on one of my first shows. And I could never get him anymore after that. Uh, so, uh, you know, and uh, Jackie just stood the studio up in that first match. Fans remembered him. And wow, this guy had such fire. Uh, then Bob Arm, Bob uh, Roop and Bob Orton Jr., they defended their Southeastern Tag Belts on the next match. So we're going to have a championship TV match uh, card uh, for this TV show. Personality profile was recorded out there on a beautiful lake just north of Knoxville, Norris Lake. And it's one of the beautiful lakes in the East Tennessee area. And uh, this profile was all about the boat, man. And uh, Les took a camera crew uh, out to the boat at the marina that was at the dam there. It really, 250-foot deep dam. Wow. Uh, and uh, one of the first hydroelectric dams built in the Depression. Uh, beautiful lake, fabulous lake. And uh, so, and they did a tremendous job, man, uh, Les and the guys that shot this from Channel 10 Television, uh, selling that boat, man. They, they did uh, everything on the outside of it, then went in the cabin, and wow, it was a spectacular personality profile. Then Ronnie Garvin defended his belt. Uh, you know, he's the third championship match on that TV, and uh, as always, man, he ended it by jumping off the top rope. In somebody's throat. I don't remember who it was, but, uh, wow. you know, it wasn't the first guy that was going to get it, nor the last. <laughs> and then the show closed out by the giant uh, masked Canadian bumblebee, you know, and uh, wow, he was over 
big time. I mean, when he came into the studio, the uh, they went crazy. And he buzzed all over that ring, man. He drop kicked his opponent, you know, and he drop kicked him. He he made it look like he weighed half of what he did. It just absolutely amazing what he could do. And uh, once he drop kicked this guy, he climbed up on the top rope and he did a belly flop off this guy, four hundred fifty pounds from the top rope. <laughs> I, mean, I thought he killed the guy. He was not a corner leaner. You sent me a picture the other day, and he is doing exactly that, a drop kick, and he's kicking the guy in the face, and that is incredible for 450 pounds. He didn't just lean in the corner and wait on somebody to tag out, but, and in this case, obviously, he was a single wrestler, so that's a great TV show, but did the Bumblebee's opponent get up after that, <laughs> after that squash, and did the show have any interesting interviews? <laughs> no, actually, the boy didn't get up, and they kind of hauled him out of there. You know, <laughs> I wasn't surprised that he didn't get up. And uh, but uh, wow, the to interviews, man. Uh, yeah, man, we had quite a few. I mean, everybody who wrestled on the TV show made an interview during the course of the show. Kevin Sullivan and Dean Ho made an interview about their upcoming Southeastern tag title match with Orton and Root. Uh, a pre-recorded interview arrived out of Memphis from Tor Tanaka that was shown on this show, who was the Southern champion. Uh, I pre-cut an interview on the Friday, the day before I left Knoxville, to go down to be on the Gulf Coast TV show that they showed on the show. And Ron Wright uh, cut an interview with his impressive uh, Japanese star, Mr. Fuji. Talked about his man being in the first uh, Bayliner Boat Tournament match and Ron Wright was talking about how cool he's going to be driving around the lake <laughs> up there in East Tennessee. <laughs> no, he was, he was really fired up, man. Uh, he was already <laughs> planning on planning on getting him a life jacket. Oh, so that's, that's crazy. I can't believe that. That had to be one of the best TV shows ever. So what happened at the matches the following Friday night? Well, Mr. Fuji opened up the night uh, with a win uh, over Terry Gibbs, which Ron Wright was very happy about. And obviously, it was it was the winner of the first Bayliner Boat Tournament uh, match. And uh, Jackie Fargo defended successfully his Mid-American title against Tojo Yamamoto. I won my match against Tor Tanaka, but it was by disqualification. So I got my hand raised, but I didn't get the belt. Kevin Sullivan and Dean Ho won their Southeastern Tag title match as well, but also by disqualification, just like I had, and they didn't get the belts. So they're going to be returning the next week in another title match, uh, but the next time it's going to be a no disqualification match for those guys. Uh, Ronnie Garvin retained his belt with a win over the mass destroyer, Bob Root, but uh, Bob Warden Jr. showed up at ringside about the time this one was over, and uh, and he had some kind of sticky liquid that he poured all over Garvin. Garvin was kind of down in, at the end of the match, and uh, and he sneaked up behind him, and he poured it on his back and over his head. And it was kind of like, what the heck is this all about? You know, but uh, the Roop and Orton and the Malenko group, wow, they, they were into some crazy stuff. So then the NWA non-sanctioned lights-out match with the great Malenko against the Canadian Bumblebee. 
It absolutely needed to be a non-sanctioned match, to be honest with you. It looked like a battle royal before it was over. I mean, there was so many guys in the ring. And uh, so these NWA non-sanctioned matches, and they always had a lot of intrigue. Fans loved them, man. Not only for the violence in, in most of these, uh, these you know, uh, non-sanctioned NWA matches, but they loved the presentation, how they were presented. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so when both competitors got into the ring, uh, basically how it worked is both of the guys got in the ring. The announcer called for them to kill the house lights. The building went totally dark. That basically signified that all the NWA matches for the event were over. And then about 10 seconds of darkness was over and the lights, uh, you know, as soon as it went dark, the crowd exploded. And I never saw it fail, you know, <laughs> the building went black and everybody roared, yeah. you know. And then when the lights came back up, the NWA non-sanction match was announced, you know, who was in it, uh, with the fact that there had to be a winner. That was the deal for these non-sanction matches. And to me, Wow, I was in a lot of them in Florida before I came to and started my own company. I love to have them uh, in my own company as well. Every time I was involved in them or I even stood back in the back and watched, it was like goosebump time, man. The crowd would roar. You know, it always seemed like the entire event started all over again. And everybody now was standing up and cheering when it started instead of being set down. So. It was really crazy, those events. And uh, Lights Out match started uh, with just Malenko and the Canadian Bumblebee in the ring. But it ended up with Bob Root coming down there, with uh, Bob Orton Jr. coming down there. Ronnie Garvin ended up back down there. Kevin Sullivan and Dean O. I mean, uh, Malenko was all bloody. And, uh, you know, he was finally uh, covered by the Bumblebee. Bumblebee had his mask half torn off, and he was also bleeding. It was like a wild deal, man. And it was obvious to everybody in the building that there was plenty of heat, man, between this group of wrestlers. Wow, no doubt. Okay, so I want to ask something really quickly about the Lights Out non-sanctioned NWA. Does that mean the NWA disavowed any responsibility for what happened in that match to those wrestlers? What, What did that really mean? That's exactly what it meant. Okay. It means that they aren't going to be responsible for anything. Uh, usually you didn't have one of those type of matches until you'd had everything. You'd okay. have the Texas death. You'd have the cage. You'd yeah. have everything else. But this was like the final deal. And, uh, you know, you couldn't get any more violent than yeah. a NWA non-sanctioned lights out match. And that's there. I remember, uh, in Florida in the 70s, mm-hmm. it was the biggest deal when you had one of those. And you didn't have probably more than one, maybe one every other year. I mean, it, it wasn't a big thing that happened often. Right. But when they had them, they were, they were big events. And usually you had an announcer, correct me on this if I'm wrong, but usually you had an announcer in the ring that was there when the lights went down and came back up. And that he would make an announcement about, okay, that here's here's the lights out match, non-sanctioned, and make an official announcement about it, right? That's it. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, he would as soon as the lights went down, came back up, he explained it all. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, you're now in a new night. This is, <laughs> this event that we've watched is over, and yeah. this next one is not in any way 
sanctioned by the National Wrestling Alliance. Wow. Uh, you know, when you <laughs> built it up that way, yeah. wow, those things, uh, no wonder fans were just standing on their feet. As soon as the lights went out and it went totally dark in the building, it was unbelievable. <laughs> like I said, the building would just explode. Yeah. And, and then they didn't sit down. A lot of times they wouldn't sit down for the whole match because they were so into it. And did did it mean anything goes as far as rules in the match? Oh, yeah. Typically? <laughs> there were no rules. Okay. All right. That's what That's I thought. That's why I ended up That's... with all these other guys in the ring before <laughs> right. it's over. I mean, yeah. you know, there's no control in yeah. it. Okay. You, know, you, just, uh, you just have to oh. make sure that somebody wins. Somebody's <laughs> got to win. It's, it just goes on until somebody gets beat. It's like you said, when you have grudges between two wrestlers and you've tried everything, like uh, the the chain match, the death match, and this and that. So anyway, that's that's wild. Okay. All right. So it really sounds like a fantastic night for the fans. It sounds like they really ate that up. So what about attendance in the Coliseum for the first Friday night back there, 1979? Well, it was back over 5,000 in, in attendance again. Uh, but it was still below the crowds of 1978. And I was a little concerned about that. We could only hold somewhere between 5,000 and 5,800 mm -hmm. was all the Coliseum could hold. It was a maximum. But uh, we were selling out quite a few of them in 78. So we were still a little down from 1978. Hey, I tell you what, Stud, it's been a great ride so far. I think you said after breaking down the Knoxville night, we were going to take a little ride into West Tennessee. Let's go to Memphis for a brief look at what was happening there. Yeah, that's right, Dave. Uh, let's take a close look at the number of different Southeast. Well, I want to kind of make people aware of what's going on here. And so let's take a look at the number of different Southeastern stars that had gone to the Memphis territory, either to stay or for just one show since the first time any of us appeared there on Monday, January 22nd, uh, 1979. That was the very first night that Rob ended up in uh, Memphis. And then a lot of guys started going there after that. And on that first night, Seven total Southeastern stars were on that card. Rob was there the week before. And then the next show, Rob brought in seven Southeastern stars. Uh, and the next night uh, we've talked about uh, was, let's talk about the one month later, February 26, 1979. That card had 11 Southeastern stars on it. Two months later, uh, on March 26, 1979, there was eight Southeastern stars on it. So by March 26, 1979, uh, just two months after the first departures to Memphis began from Southeastern fan wrestlers going to Memphis, 10 total wrestlers, including my brother Robert, the Southeastern Gulf Coast booker as well as a wrestler, were there permanently by that point in two months' time. Uh, so, uh, you know, eight of those uh, 10 uh, they were there for good, mm -hmm. and uh, and they came. All of them came from the southeastern. Um, eight of those came out of the southeastern Gulf Coast territory. Mm -hmm. Eight alone came from southeastern. So imagine, Dave, with what happens when you're a booker and you lose eight of your top wrestlers from from your territory in a two month period of time, and you try to replace all those guys. Uh, what what does that do to the territory, man? Wow, do you just start grabbing people out of the crowd? Hey, can you wrestle? Wow. <laughs> All 
All right, listen, I think anyone who's listened to any of these 1979 studcasts could could tell us that, Ron, no doubt. Crowds have dropped dramatically. I think I actually said that in the last studcast. So how are things going at this point in the Memphis territory since your brother and all the other Southeastern talent had arrived there? Well, think about it, man. Uh, if you if you were booking and you added the Mongolian stomper, Tora Tanaka, <laughs> Don Carson, <laughs> Tony Charles, Jimmy Golden, the assassin Randy Colley, Buzz Sawyer, Gorgeous George Jr., Mike Stallings, Rip Smith, and a booker like my brother and also a wrestler too. Mm-hmm. Uh, 60 days later, uh, what do you think is going to happen there? I mean, uh, <laughs> it, it business took a dramatic jump. Yeah. I <laughs> and obviously, imagine. if you take that kind of a crew and you add it to, to Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee and some of the guys that were already there, uh, it, there's no way that that's not going to really dramatically jump business. Uh, yeah. So I talked to my brother, Rob, uh, a heck of a lot during this time frame. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, you know, and I asked him about the houses and he said houses had doubled already in the first two months that the crowds were twice as big in Memphis, Louisville, all of the major cities. And uh, we both knew, you know, and we talked about it uh, since it had only been two months. And with this new southeastern crew that he had there, that uh, chances are in another two months, they're going to be selling these big buildings out. Wow, no doubt. All right, so it really sounds like your help was making a huge difference there. I can't wait to hear more about that. And I can't wait to hear more about the Hulk's push to start him and what was happening in southeastern Gulf Coast. I tell you what, this is a good spot for a break. And when we return, we're going to get into the southeast Gulf Coast and the Hulk. So maybe you can tell us about how you make a wrestler bleed from his mouth. Is there a chance we could do that too? <laughs> well, we'll see, my man. <laughs> All right, hang in there. This Studcast is going to be back right after this. Stay with us. Hey, Studcast fans, some of the best historical wrestling history is on Ron's TNstud.com website. His 43 Super Studcast, all around three hours in length, cover riots, wrestling wars, his greatest matches, living legends, and tributes to legends no longer here. They're all available now, only $2.99 at tnstud.com. Many are done live with the wrestlers themselves, and each is a classic. Relive wrestling history and ride with the stud on his amazing super studcast. Saddle up now, tnstud.com, for an unforgettable experience. All right, welcome back to another studcast. It's episode number 292, Creating Wrestling Legends. We're going to hear about one of the biggest ever, and then one of the biggest ever. All right, Southeastern Gulf Coast right now, Ron. You had another new star there, like Crusher Blackwell, that would set the wrestling world on fire. This was only his third week in the territory, and fans were already buzzing about this guy. I'm sure you and your Gulf Coast booker, Louis Tillette, had way more plans for the Hulk before we go there, let's start by finding out who was on the first 1979 April card in Mobile, Alabama. How about that? That's a good idea. So, uh, you know, uh, 
This card was going to be uh, greatly affected, I got to say this, before we get into the card, by what was going to happen on the TV show five days before the card in Mobile actually took place. So the actual date of this Mobile event was on April 4th, 1979. Uh, the opening match was Armand Hussein uh, versus another newcomer. Uh, into the territory down there, another person that Louis Tillet had contacted. Uh, this guy's name was Curtis Smith, and he was one of the great members of the original Inferno team. Uh, he and his brother, Rocky Smith, were managed by J.C. Dykes, and wow, what a team those guys were, and what a manager Dykes was. Uh, ben Alexander faced off against Punk Rock, Wayne Ferris, the future honky-tonk man in the second match, the third match was a turn match. Uh, after the Hulk had attacked uh, Calvert last week from behind, after he finished wrestling the second person from the audience, uh, uh, put the bear hug on him. And uh, and then uh, once the ref finally got him to let loose of him, then that's where he grabbed the referee and took him by one hand and held him upside down and took the $500 of Calvert's money back out of the referee's pants and he went to the dressing room. So they're back on this card. This time they're going to be wrestling for the $500. A pro didn't, uh, I mean, uh, you know, Hulk didn't want to just give him the money back. He said, you can earn it. You know, you beat me, I'll give you money back. So then the pro, uh, Tarzan Baxter and the Gladiator, Dick Steinborn, they're meeting for the third week in a row. This time it was a no disqualification match. And after the Gladiator had introduced his new manager, Billy Spears, to the crowd in Mobile the week before, uh, Billy made a, Billy's going to see what he can do to, to take care of business for, for his man. Uh, there were two main events, both for the Southeastern Championships. David Schultz was defending his Southeastern title against Norvell Austin. This time it was going to be in a Texas death match. And then all the wrestlers were going to be returning to the ring at the end of the end of the night as lumberjacks to throw any wrestler back into the ring that decided they they couldn't take it and wanted to leave. And the Southeastern Tag Championship of Rip Tyler and Eddie Sullivan, they were managed by Billy Spears, was on the line. And they were against that really good team, man, from that Mobile area down there, Ricky Fields and Terry Latham. Okay, Ron, that's another great six-match card in Southeastern Gulf Coast. You said this card was going to be greatly affected by the TV the Saturday before. So what happened on that TV five days before this card took place? Well, this TV opened up with Charlie Platt by himself, and I was there. Uh, said, uh, and he, Charlie started running down the TV card for the day. And he only got as far along as announcing what was a, going to be a very special uh, first time ever uh, down there in that part of the country, Texas death match on television in the first match of the day. And about the time he got finished with that, before he could even finish with the rest of it, here comes Billy Spears. And he interrupts him in the middle of it. And uh, as always with Billy, he demands uh, from Charlie that he be on the personality profile uh, because it's in the middle of the show. And he says, uh, it's because I have another huge announcement, you know. So and Charlie had a very strange relationship with Billy Spears, as most people did. They didn't like Billy much. So Charlie stopped him right away. He interrupted Billy in the middle of his 
it was of his demand to be on the personality profile. And he got a little pop from the studio crowd right off the bat. So he asked Billy, you know, Billy says, uh, it's going to be another huge announcement. So he says to Billy, is, is something wrong with your mama? <laughs> <laughs> he asked him, has she suddenly declared bankruptcy? <laughs> so Billy got very upset. Oh, boy, but the crowd loved it. They popped, man. Oh, my and, uh, God. You know, Billy got upset at both Charlie and the audience. They were still laughing. You know, so then he asked Charlie, he kind of interrupted the crowd's laughing, and he, he says, oh, are you, what are you going to do? Are you going to grant my request or not? You know, so <laughs> Charlie was enjoyed the first line, the first joke, so he hit him with another. And so he says to Billy, he goes, up, he says, well, if your big news is not that your mama's bankrupt, then how much are you going to pay for the personality profile? <laughs> crowd popped again. Oh so Charlie's off to a good start. And uh, Spears began, he got upset this time, and he just basically took off. He stormed <laughs> off the set, but then Charlie called him back. You know, and I guess he felt bad. <laughs> you, know, that, you know, and he said, you know, later, you know, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm going to ask the officials, the Southeastern officials, in the first break of the show mm -hmm. about us changing the personality profile. I'll let you on. We'll see what happened. I'll let you know, basically. <laughs> so Spears drove off to the dressing room, but the crowd was still laughing at him when he left. Uh, oh. <laughs> they didn't get over it. Charlie's jokes real quickly. Oh, my God. That sounds exactly like Charlie Platt, who, by the way, called me one day this week. And I said, dude, I hope your ears are burning because we're talking about you like every time on the Studcast now with the Southeastern Gulf Coast. So that was a really unusual opening to a TV show. I don't think I ever saw anything like that before. It makes me wonder what was what was so important. Well, it was important enough that that I caught a plane, man, from Knoxville down to Dothan the morning after this Knoxville card mm -hmm. that we just talked about earlier, that uh, night of champions. I got on a plane Saturday morning, and I flew to Dothan, Alabama, so that I could be there for this for this TV. Uh, so that's how important <laughs> it was, man. Uh, you know, uh, the, it was it was it was a big deal. Well, that makes me think this truly was some kind of special TV show. So. Who was in that first time ever Texas death match on TV in Southeastern Gulf Coast history? Well, Norvell Austin, man, was uh, he was in this first, uh, you know, and this had never been done. We had never done that in Southeastern. I don't know that we ever did it after it, after this one either. But uh, he was against, uh, you know, rather than put him in there just against a jabron, you know, the guy that's there to do a job. We we stuck him, uh, you know, Louie and I talked about it. We said, let's put him in there with somebody that's good, man. And so we put him in there with punk rock Wayne Ferris, uh, Texas death match, first match on television. Uh, so uh, David Schultz, as always, as he was inclined to do, he just uh, uninvited comes to the set, joins Charlie, says, I'm going to commentate over this match with you. And, uh, and while the match was a great one, man, they had about five or six falls, man, and uh, in which the, the wrestler got pinned, and then there was a 30-second rest period, and then you had the 10 count to get to your feet. And for five or six falls there, 
they were they went through the 30 second rest period and they were able to get back to the feet well after about the fifth fall norvell had already hit ferris in the fall right before that with his diving headbutt and he covered him for the pin and after the 30 second rest period ferris barely got up for the 10 count i guess he got to his feet about the count of nine and austin just grabbed him man and shot him across the ring into the ropes and he came for another diving headbutt, but Ferris was still so out of it from the first shot that uh, when he came off the ropes, he just fell flat on his face. <laughs> he was half unconscious, and uh, <laughs> and when he was coming off the ropes, and Norvell was already in the air, up pretty high, expecting him to be running toward him, and uh, so he was coming for the final headbutt. He was going to hit him with another one, uh, but. He sailed, Punk Rock fell on his face, so he sailed right over Punk Rock's head, and the referee was happened to be passing behind where Ferris had come off the ropes, and he hit that referee with the bat, with the, with the flying headbutt, man, and it sent the referee through the ropes out onto the concrete. So uh, Norvell, uh, <laughs> what? there's Punk Rock just laying there. He didn't even get to hit him, but he, he still wasn't able to get up. So uh, Norvell just covered him, but there's no reverie at that point. So Schultz is sitting there and he's commentating with Charlie and he just bolts right straight into the ring. Man, he slides up into the ring. He drops an elbow on Norvell, the back of Norvell's head. He picks him up. He throws him over the top rope. He got out and pile drived him head first on the concrete. Wow. Then he rolled him back into the ring. He got back in the ring and he put Ferris on top of Norvell. <laughs> then he got out, picked up the referee and rolled the referee into the ring. And then he ran back to the set with Charlie. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, so he had changed the whole deal, man. <laughs> so the studio audience was going crazy, man, about uh, you know what had just happened. And Punk Rock now was on top of Norvell rather than vice versa, which was about to <laughs> A minute earlier, and then the ref finally uh, got uh, his senses about him, and he counted Norvell out, and he rang the bell. And after a thirty-second rest period, well, Norvell had been dropped on the concrete. He's not going to get up, and uh, he started the ten count. And Ferris, Ferris was still not really on his feet, but he got up before just before the ten count. Norvell had made it to his hands and knees, but um, they raised Ferris's hand. Uh, what a great way to start. What a great Texas guest match, man. That sounds like a David Schultz move, no doubt. I can only imagine how much heat that got both Dr. D and punk rock Wayne Ferris. That's a great start to the TV show. So, all right, so who was next? Well, Ricky Fields and Terry Latham, man, uh, they were getting ready for their Southeastern Tag Championship match. This time is going to be with Lumberjack Rules, wrestlers stationed around the ring to throw the participants back in when they got out. And they were going to be facing the champions, Rick Rip Tyler, Eddie Sullivan, managed by Billy Spears. And, wow, those boys look great. They love those TV matches, and they really, really just – put a whole lot of effort into into every one of them. And wow, they got themselves a great win. And uh, then it was personality profile. And, uh, you know, it's time for the profile. And uh, Billy Spears uh, was, he had already gotten permission. He had found out after the first match that he was going to be allowed to, to do the profile. So he brought his three men with him, you know. So, uh, and it was done live. 
with the with the TV TV audience. So within just a few feet, the bleachers. You know how the bleachers were in that Dothan studio right next to the the, the profile set. So they're right there by the by the people in the profile, and then Spears uh, sat down with Charlie. He had his two tag champions behind him. They had their belts on, and uh, and then he had his masked gladiator standing with them, and he bragged about his men, you know, that it, the guys that he already had uh, standing behind him, uh, his two champions and his gladiator that was soon going to be a champion himself, and then out of nowhere, he hadn't been there on through in thirty seconds. He he just changed the subject entirely. And he basically said to the three of them, he said, uh, okay, I thank you guys for coming out with me. He goes for for this triumphant moment. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he basically insulted all three of them then. But he says, uh, I, I, y'all can go on back to the dressing room. He says, because I'm about to introduce my latest acquisition. <laughs> so the three wrestlers, they looked at each other, man. They had no idea. Like, what is it? what's going on here? Who is it? What are you talking about? And then, uh, so, they, and they, you know, they probably knowing Spears, though, they just went on to the dressing room. And uh, then uh, Billy got out of his chair, you know, and he dug down deep in his pants pocket, man, and he pulled out a wad of money, man. Uh, you know, he didn't say what it was, but it was, you know, it was a handful this time. And it was far beyond what he'd ever given his, the other guys, you know, and he'd given away some pretty decent money to his tag team guys. Uh, so then it was, uh, you know, he, then he was acting like he was the master of ceremonies at a, at a circus, man. And he was going to introduce the almighty himself, man. And he raised his voice up and he says, I have found the greatest wrestler on the planet (laughs) and the man that's going to take me to the promised land when I become the manager of the next world heavyweight champion. (laughs) You know, so he looked around at the two sets of bleachers next to him. They were full of fans. And he said, get up, <laughs> stand up to honor this moment. <laughs> well, obviously, they just booed, right? <laughs> Nobody got up. They just started to booing. And then he introduced uh, his so-called next world heavyweight champion, uh, Sterling Golden, the Hulk. Sterling Golden. Sterling Golden. Okay. Sterling Golden. And, uh, you know, he... That was where the first time anybody heard of him is Sterling Golden. So Hulk yeah. came out of the dressing room door on the far side of the studio. Uh, he, obviously, there's a monitor back there, and when he gets it, when he sees uh, Billy dig into his pants and bring out that wad of money, boy, when so comes out of the studio, out of the dressing room, he's smiling from ear to ear, man. And uh, while the booze intensified, he comes over and he grabs a Billy and he gives him a big hug, you know. And uh, and then Billy starts to sit down. The Coke's going to walk around and stand behind him like the other guys were. But the Hulk stops him. He grabs him by his jacket there, right? And he spins him around and he sticks out his hand. <laughs> Billy's still got the money in his hand. Oh, Billy goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He puts a handful of money in the Hulk's Hulk's hand. And, uh, you know, that said everything about this relationship between those two. Obviously, this is all about money. Mm -hmm. So then Charlie's first question was, 
where did you come up? Where did where did you come up with that name Sterling Golden uh, from Billy? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I've never heard anybody call him that. And he says, you know, well, he says Charlie because because this man is pure silver and gold. Sterling for the silver, <laughs> and obviously golden for the gold. Oh my God! <laughs> he said, he said, he said, this man is going to change everything, especially, you know. And he said. He says, uh, and I'm going to change him. He goes, especially his sweet attitude in the ring. He goes, he needs to be a monster. He goes, I'm going to make a monster sensation out of him. I'm going to lead this guy to the World Wrestling Championship, <laughs> and uh, and I'm going to take that trip. It's going to start today right here in this TV studio. Now, now, what you're talking about is a real crazy personality profile. Billy Spears really did have a reason for wanting to be on this this one, this profile. So what did he mean about making a monster out of the Hulk and set us up for who was on next? Well, the Hulk was going to be in the last match on this show. and uh, But uh, let's first talk about the next match, okay, before we get to the last match. Uh the next match was one of Spears' wrestlers, and it was the very talented Dick Steinborn under the mask as a gladiator. Mm-hmm. And Dick Steinborn could really wrestle, man. He, he didn't have to be uh, a, a heel, but, uh, you know, he didn't mind being a heel either, though. And, uh, you know, he, he could wrestle any style, and he proved it in this TV match, this short match. You know, uh, Spears took him out and was standing there and watching it, and uh, he actually won the match with a sleeper hook. And uh, and boy, he didn't he didn't barely get the guy laid down, and uh, hadn't even popped him on the back to get him uh, back conscious again. And uh, boy, Billy Spears comes running in the ring like a proud peacock man, and uh, and raises his hand in victory before he can even wake the guy up. You know, so Billy was having a fiery day, man. He was off to a good start. Uh, then the last match on this TV was going to change everything for the Hulk. And uh, Southeastern Wrestling and Southeastern Gulf Coast as well, man. So Sterling Golden uh, was up against my cousin, Roy Lee Welch. And uh, Louie and I wanted to give the Hulk a much better opponent than he'd been having. This was only his third time on TV. Uh, and he had won two matches with his bear hug. But... Uh, it was it was very obvious the personality profile has done its job, man, because when the Hulk came out with Billy Spears out of the dressing room for this last match and headed for the ring, there was no doubt anymore about the fans, from the fans anyway, about who the Hulk was and what he was all about. And you could have heard that crowd in the studio booing, man, downtown Dothan. I mean, wow, they were really, all of a sudden, the Hulk is a heel and there ain't no doubt about it. Wow. So for the first time in a Hulk match, he actually showed signs of being almost human. I mean, uh, Roy actually threw a couple of punches, and he, he almost got him staggering, right? So, But it was the end of the match, man, that left everybody in that studio, and all of them at home, too, I'm sure, in awe. Uh, Hulk was finally able to get Roy in his bear hug. And, uh, and he got him to give up, just like he had the first two opponents. And uh, then when he got the victory, he dropped Roy to the mat, and he just started to leave the ring like he had done before. But Billy 
jumps up in the rain and uh, he stops him when he gets to the ropes and he, he says, no, go get him and finish him. Get him again. Put him in it again. And uh, so the Hulk hesitated, you know, but, uh, you know, it's his new manager. and He's got a handful of money already, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, hey, so he went back. He picked up Roy. Roy's laying on the mat. He picked him up. He put him back into the bear hug, man. And uh, boy, put that vice grip on him, uh, and uh, and he started squeezing him again. Well, the referee tried to stop him, but Spears nailed the ref from behind. He knocked him down, kicked him till he went out into the floor, and uh, and then he just went right in the Hulk's face and squeezed him harder. He was really, he was really, really pushing him. And the studio crowd was screaming, "Man, for somebody to come out and help Roy." Uh, so Roy's head at this point was mm-hmm. hanging over the Hulk's shoulder, man. His arms were dangling down by his side. He was basically out of it. He was unconscious. And then all of a sudden, man, blood started streaming from Roy's mouth. And it ran down the Hulk's back. TV got a close-up of it, blood coming out of his mouth, and wow. he was running down the Hulk's back. And instead of that crowd, they were going crazy, booing, and they went dead silent. And uh it was a sign, man, that uh, basically things had gone too far. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. <laughs> so, so I'm there, you know. Uh, Roy's my cousin, so I was the first guy to hit the ring, and uh, I hadn't been seen in Dothan for almost six weeks since the world title defense against Harley Race, which was about six weeks earlier. Uh, nobody knew I was there. You know, and the studio exploded. As soon as I hit the ring, Hulk dropped Roy, and he and Spears headed for the dressing room. Uh, they didn't make any attempt to do anything to me, but uh, you know, uh, it was it was a it was pretty pretty uh, heavy duty deal. I mean, you were six nine. The Hulk had to be eye to eye with you. Was that the first time anyone had seen a wrestler bleed from the mouth? And was it common knowledge that you were related to Roy? Did everybody know that? Well, as far as I know, Dave, it was the first time anyone had, had seen something like that in that part of the country, uh, somebody bleeding from the mouth. I know that we'd never done it in southeastern Knoxville before. So as far as I know, no fans in southeastern Gulf Coast knew Roy and I were related. Uh, I was a fuller, always had been, as far as the fan was concerned. He's a Welch. Uh, so, you know, they didn't know the connection there. But uh, it's uh, it's going to become uh, it's going to become clear pretty quickly. Yeah. See, I, I thought the Knoxville TV show was spectacular, but this one was dead serious. I don't know which was best. I think the Hulk had definitely become a heel that day, obviously. And I don't know how Billy Spears even stayed alive in the process. <laughs> so, so, what was the results of the card in Mobile five nights later? Well, newcomer Curtis Smith, uh, the Mask Inferno, won his first Southeastern Mobile match. Uh, he had been in that territory before, but uh, this was his first Southeastern uh, event there. Uh, punk Rock Wayne Ferris beat Ben Alexander in the second match. Uh, I wasn't at the Mobile show like I was for this TV, but Louis later told me that when the Hulk and Billy Spears went to the ring, he said, didn't just happen in Mobile, but it happened in every city, Ron, that had seen this TV. He said, if they saw the TV, he said, when they went to the ring, he said, the crowds went crazy, man. 
standing and booing them. He said the heat was unbelievable from that one television uh, experience. And he also said when uh, they left the ring in Mobile, after Spears got involved in the match and Hulk beat Curb Calvert with his bear hug again, like he had done the week before, uh, Louis said that all the policemen in the building had to escort him back to the dressing room, even though it was just the third match on the card, and it was only the second time the Hulk had been in that building. No, so that kind of heat, that fast was extremely rare, man. For a third match on a six-match card, for fans to react that way, uh, maybe that Sterling Golden name was going to come true. <laughs> so, right? I mean, it looked like he started in that direction. Mm-hmm. So then the gladiator in the next match was managed by Billy Spears. Again, Billy's back in the ring. And, uh, and he won uh, his notice qualification match. Spears helped him. Uh, he was grasping the wrestling pro. And uh, it's an ODQ, and Spears just reached through the ropes, grabbed the wrestling pro's tights when he was trying to kick out and held him there until he lost the match. So, you know, Billy's off to a pretty good night. Uh, Then David Schultz uh, successfully defended his southeastern belt against Norville Austin in the Texas death match. And then after five straight matches now, this is in Mobile, and all the heels have won every one of them, Ricky Fields and Terry Latham, took the Southeastern belts away from Billy Spears, uh, Rip Tyler and Eddie Sullivan team in the lumberjack tag match. Wow, man. That is a crazy night of wrestling. So how about the attendance in all three of the major markets that had this same card? Well, Montgomery had 2,800 there. Uh, Dothan was back to 3000 and mobile was back to 4,000. All three of the cities were up in attendance, basically, after more than a month straight of drops in attendance. We'd been dropping uh, every week. Uh, Finally, we got a little jump again. Uh, And it was a perfect example of what a a lot of TV, a real hot TV show uh, did back in the day to get things back on track. I'll tell you what, this has been one of my favorite studcasts so far. And out of 292, that's saying a lot. You've given us a tremendous ride today, Stud, filled with wrestling history, no doubt. I'm sorry, but I I can't believe it. We don't have time for a learning tree question again this week, and we're going to do our best to try to make that up very soon. And by the way, for fans that enjoy these questions so much, you can get more than three hours of Ask the Stud questions and answers from Ron on his YouTube Southeastern Rewind channel. It's free It's there right now on YouTube. And Studcast fans on Facebook, go to Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee stud. Like and follow him there to become friends with a living legend. Same thing on Twitter. Ron Fuller Welch, follow him there on Twitter. Check out his website, tnstud.com for Super Studcast. Every Studcast ever done, including this one, number 292. I mean, so if you're just joining us, you got uh, 291 to catch up on. All right, so check them out at tnstud.com. It is all there. Plus, you've got the stud store, all kinds of souvenirs, and get your personally autographed copy of Ron's Brutus novel. Ron's YouTube channel is Southeastern Rewind, as we mentioned earlier. Don't miss all three Ask the Stud question and answer shows, plus more than 20 short rides with the stud. Every stud cast, when they are released, 
and a whole lot more. YouTube Southeastern Rewind is just the gateway to ClassicContinentalWrestling.com, the stud's tremendous streaming channel where you find everything that is the Tennessee stud. There are now more than 250 hours of classic wrestling entertainment, old school TV shows from Gulf Coast to Southeastern to Continental to USA Wrestling, all in the order which they were recorded. That's how it's meant to be. That's ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Plus, 19 chapters of Ron's audio version of his best-selling line novel, Brutus. And he reads every word of it to you. Six stars of the sport. Four superstars of the past. Wendell Cooley. Mongolian Stomper. Dirty White Boy documentaries on them all. And something new every day. All of this for only $4.99 per month or $39.99 per year, plus the free one-week trial is still available. That's ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. It is the best deal in wrestling. Listen, our time has gone really fast today, Stud. I just realized that I didn't get my question answered about how you were able to get wrestlers to bleed from the mouth. I don't know if we're going to get an answer on that or not. And then where are we writing next week, Stud? Well, man, I guess I'm going to start with answering that question for you, Dave. <laughs> you know, and uh, and you're right. We had a whole lot into this program, a whole lot into this show. And uh, so uh, I'll be glad to. Uh, uh, we're going to be really opening the K-Fade door next week uh, to answer that one. And we're going to be uh, loaded, as a matter of fact, in the next Tudcast. The Knoxville card is going to have a cage match. It's going to have two championship matches. It's going to have two Bayliner boat matches. Uh, plus, we're going to dive into what was happening behind the scenes there concerning the upcoming the upcoming Knoxville war uh, as we get closer to that war every week now. Uh, then the Oak has become the focus basically in Gulf Coast at this point after what, what he did to Roy mm-hmm. on TV. His father, next, uh, next stud cast, Lester Welch, is going to make a surprise appearance on TV himself. And things are going to get wild again. So so I'll do my best to get another Learning Tree question uh, answered next week, I promise. And I apologize. Uh, but it's become very difficult because there's so many things happening in Southeastern at this point. Uh, 43 years ago, it's hard to it's hard to get to everything I'd like to in every episode. I want to personally thank all the Studcast fans. Uh, that have been riding every week for years with me. And uh, and I really want to welcome those that are saddling up for the first time. And there's there's hundreds of them and thousands of them at this point now. Mm-hmm. We're really uh, becoming something, uh, uh, something exceptional in the podcast industry. Yep. So please take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at David Summers Productions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So, full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.